so that's verse 14 of chapter 15 on page 237. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this light. He said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to... It is better to obey than to sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better of you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gebeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Leadership is, of course, everything. I think we all know that, and any who've worked in any sort of institution will be aware that leadership it counts hugely. We used to carry the commanding officer of our battalion out of the battalion physically when their time had finished, and we did it three times. Literally overnight, the whole place changed. When Montgomery was appointed to the 8th Army, everything changed. When Gareth Southgate came to England's soccer team, everything changed. 
This time last year, the English cricket team was languishing with yet another humiliation. And, and since then, Stokes and Brendan McCullen have arrived and everything has changed. Leadership is everything. Teachers know it. The city knows it. If only we had leadership in the NHS, uh, this country knows it. What qualities are required from God's leader? You know, we've arrived at the climax of eight chapters exploring the wrong kind of leader. You might call it a study in the failure of leadership. And chapter 15 brings us, I think, to the end of a poignant and tragic tale. You can see that leadership is the issue from verse 1 of the chapter. The Lord sent me to anoint you king. It's there again in verse 17. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And then verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom away from you. And the final scenes with the mighty Saul, who was in so many ways so good, desperately clutching at Samuel's robe and then begging Samuel at least to appear in public with him, helplessly casting around for some means of preserving whatever credibility and dignity he still has. I mean, they're so contemporary. It's pathetic, tragic, desperate, real. The end of Boris, the end of Blair, the end of Maggie. The end of Liz. You know, won't somebody put them out of their misery? And then what went wrong? The leadership of God's people. What is actually required for a leader who really can save the people of God, who can save us? Now, we have arrived at one of the most challenging chapters in the whole of the Bible. Andrew Reid is a great Bible teacher, Aussie. If you had to assess the hardest chapter in the books of Samuel to understand and then teach to a Christian congregation, this chapter would be at or near the top. Well, thanks so much, Phil, for organizing the series the way it's fallen out today. But you can't get away from the issue. The issue is leadership. What kind of leader does God want for his people? What kind of leader can save God's people? And what qualities is God concerned for? But before we get there, we do need to tackle these two very difficult and pressing matters. Both of them are very serious. They would require really a whole Sunday to do justice. The first is what appears to be holy war, ethnic cleansing, as ordered by God. Uh, You read about it up front. It's there in verse 3. Go and strike Amalek, devote to destruction all they have. Don't spare them. Kill man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. It's chilling, isn't it? And then you get again in 7 and 8, which an imaginative reader would find really horrific to read, that in verse 8, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, but devoted destruction, all the people, with the edge of the sword. I mean, don't think about it. It's too awful to consider. And it's God's doing. You can't get away from that. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. The only way to understand this, I think, is first that it is a final act of God's judgment on a people who have persistently and consistently wrought unutterable misery and pain on God's people and have consistently, vigorously opposed the rule of God. And then that before the coming of Jesus, God is, as it were, modeling vital truths for us to see which ultimately will be brought 
to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So that this is divine judgment. This is a picture of the final end of all who oppose God and his people. This is the ultimate verdict and sentence of God on those who reject his rule and shake their fist at him. And with the coming of Jesus Christ, all of that final judgment and punishment of those who stubbornly refuse to submit to him is given to Jesus to bring about at his final return. I think it should make us fear Jesus, actually. And it is horrific, and it's meant to be horrific, and it's absolutely not a blueprint for any kind of Christian action today, but it is a picture of God's patience finally running out, and it should cause us to fear God because God will ultimately judge those who reject his rule. So I hope that helps. Do talk to me afterwards if you'd like. But the second really difficult aspect is, of chapter 15 is this idea of divine regret. Did you notice that God says in verse 29 that the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not man that he should have a regret? He doesn't get things wrong. He doesn't have cause to say, oh, I wish I'd done it like that. And yet in verse 10, I regret that I made Saul king, same word. And in verse 35, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, you can imagine whole books are written on this sort of thing. But I think it's fair to say that God can perfectly easily be portrayed as having a sense of grief over the failure of Saul, just as Jesus did over Jerusalem, as he wept, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, whilst at the same time not shifting one inch from his overall promise that he will not allow a leader who does not obey his voice to lead his people. Okay, there's a lot more that could be said there, but I hope that just helps you. Now, what kind of leader can save God's people? And really, there's one big point through the whole piece that for the king, attentive obedience is everything. The leadership of God's people can only come through one who is attentively obedient to his word. And that point is made very powerfully by three words that come right through our chapter 15 and all the way through chapters 8 through 15, when brought together the three words make the issue of attentive and thoughtful and careful and courageous obedience everything. And so attentive obedience is everything. So if you want a key verse you know, to focus in on, I think that's helpful in these big narratives. Verse 22, is it it, really, for the whole of the Saul piece? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You can come to church all you like, You can make sacrifices, you can give all you like, but what God is really concerned in is attentive obedience. Now, those words come again in verse 1. Just have a look at verse 1, would you? The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, literally it reads, listen to the voice of the words of the Lord. 
and then Saul and Samuel in their little piece in between verse 19 and 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone. And so the issue, what kind of leader does God seek? What are the key qualities? If somebody's going to rescue God's people, attentive obedience. Now, I really like the King James Version of verse 1. It goes like this, hearken thou <laughs> unto the voice of the words of the Lord. I don't know how, when you last encouraged somebody to hearken, but I looked it up in the dictionary. It goes like this, hearken is to perceive with the ear with a view to acting upon what you hear. That's really good. So I rang up our Mandarin speakers this uh, week, actually. I had to go to two or three before I got the right answer. But I rang up our Mandarin speakers and spoke to a few of our Mandarin speakers and said, what is the Mandarin equivalent to hearken when it means to listen with a view to obeying? And Henry, what is it? Just shout it out. Ting song. Ting song. Um, I, when I've tried that on my Mandarin friends, they haven't actually understood what I've said. So I thought we better get Henry to give it ting song. And apparently it means... Two words, listen to follow. Now that's it. Hearken thou unto the voice of the words, listen to follow. And so do you see, God is not so much concerned with our great displays of singing choruses in mass assemblies and going to communion services and all the rest of it. What he's concerned in is that we listen to follow. That's what matters to him. But most importantly, when it comes to the king of God's people, attentive listening. Listen to follow. And of course, when you think about it, that has to be the case because, you see, God can save uh, at the flick of a switch. I don't mean to undermine or belittle, obviously, what it took for God to save, but God can save his people just like that. God can save his people, and we've learned that. I, I'm very sad that I didn't get what I think is, you know, the best bit of uh, 1 Samuel 12 through 15 to speak. It's in my passage, but we just haven't got time for it. It's when, um, it's a key incident, when Jonathan engages in what is, I think, amongst the greatest military routes of the whole of the Bible. And of course, I think it's absolutely wonderful. It's the kind of cross between Hacksaw Ridge, Braveheart, Saving Private Ryan, and Gladiator. And there are the, there are the Philistine armies with 30,000 tanks, 6,000 helicopters, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And here is Jonathan and Saul, and they're the only people with any weapons in all of Israel because the Philistines have confiscated all their metal and their blacksmiths. And Jonathan says this to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of those uncircumcised. It may be the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, here you have Jonathan in amongst all the compromise of Saul who can see it clearly and is prepared to trust the Lord, to listen, to follow. And there's this great right. Anyway, we haven't got time to go into that, but it's great reading. I hope, you'll, I hope you'll read it. But there's another reason why listening to follow is so important, and that is to do with the character of God. Just look at verse 23 that comes after our key verse. 
So we'll start in 22. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion, that is not listening, going your own way, is as the sin of divination, that's witchcraft. And presumption, that is arrogance, refusing to listen to God's word, is as iniquity and idolatry. (laughs) So do you see, not to listen to God's word, not to pay careful attention, to really mull on it, meditate it on, seek to obey it, not to do that, well, it's a bit like sticking up a totem pole and dancing around it. And you can go to as many services and worship this and wonderful choruses and sing, I love you, Lord, till you're blue in the face. But rebellion is as the sin of divination. So Saul's failure. And throughout his life, Saul is so presumptuous as to think he can do it his own way without attentive obedience. It is a study in sin. I was taught um, what little Old Testament I was taught at theological seminary. I was taught by a guy called Robert Gordon. He was a professor of Old Testament at, uh, up at the university where I was. And he was a great guy. He was in the Brethren. He was a, uh, an elder in a Brethren assembly. And he's written a lovely little commentary on 1 Samuel. And he says this as, he ta- as, as you come to chapter 15. He says... In chapter 13, failure to obey was the stone on which Saul stumbled. In chapter 15, failure to obey is the rock which crushes him. And it's an extraordinary study in sin. You will have noticed in verse 12 that he set up a monument to himself. I mean, what a worldly leader. I'd like my own blue plaque, please, Uh, and my legacy. Uh, You did realize that it was my idea, didn't you, in the first place? I started it. And then you notice in verse 13 that when Samuel comes to meet Saul first, he only tells half the truth. It's such a study in sin, isn't it? There in verse 13, where Saul says, blessed be you to the Lord. I mean, it's obsequious and creepy, isn't it, the way he greets Samuel? Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And then Samuel says, and literally it reads like this, what then is this voice of the sheep in my ears and the voice of the oxen? Meh. Whoops. And then you notice verse 20 and 21. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice, verse 21, but the people, isn't that reminiscent of uh, Genesis 3, the woman you gave me, passing the buck, only telling half a truth, actually arrogant in the first place. So Saul thinks he can fob God off with religious ritual on a Sunday as a means of offsetting rank rebellion on Monday through Saturday. You know how the big city corporations, these big companies, they have something kind of, they think they invest in all sorts of uh, green policies and green this, green that, green that, whilst at the same time burning off carbon fuel like it's going out of fashion. We call it greenwashing. And it's as if Saul thinks he can offset his rank rebellion with a bit of religious washing. 
And so Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in listening to follow the voice of the Lord? I wasn't going to mention this at all, but it just caught my attention that there was a consecration of bishops at Canterbury on Thursday and that the House of Bishops, even though they're plotting to overturn God's teaching on marriage, celebrated the Lord's Supper together. Somebody on our staff said it made them feel physically sick. I think God would agree. Behold, to listen to follow is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So attentive obedience is everything when it comes to God's leader. And in a sense, that could be all that we say on the matter God hates it when we don't take his word seriously. It's as the sin of witchcraft if we don't. We might just as well be druids sacrificing children at Stonehenge if we don't take his word seriously. You can have all the emotional experiences you like in church and sing whatever words you want, but if we don't take God's word seriously. Attentive obedience is everything. God is powerful to save. God detests rebellion. And Saul looked so good, and Saul made such a promising start, and he was head and shoulders above the rest, and he was the people's choice. He won a landslide, and he had so many good intentions, but he is the model of how not to do it. And like every leader before him, he fell at the hurdle of listening to follow It's worth noticing that attentive obedience is incredibly hard work. You know, it's a lot easier to have a whizzy experience in in a ritualistic meeting than it is to listen attentively to the word of the Lord. And it's worth noticing that to hearken to obey is remarkably costly because everybody will hate you in the world if you hearken to obey. And it's worth noting that it requires extreme courage to listen to follow. Because Saul, if he were to have done it, would have had to stand even against the people. Everybody wants a Saul. Because actually a Saul allows us to cherish our petty little sins, which God hates. Now, there are huge lessons for us. Uh, there are certainly lessons you know, for, the, for the church and for churches. And I want to just touch on that before we go into the really big lesson that I think we're learning at this point in the Bible. But the little lessons are around about this. You know, I'm not planning to go anywhere in a hurry. It's just worth um, knowing that in terms of I'm not planning to you know, walk off in a huff with regards to the Church of England and so forth. But, you know, imagine there were a 35 bus passing, which it does, and I happened to fall in front of it. What kind of leader would you want? Oh, there are so many things you might want to go for. Somebody who's really into management speak or can put on a good show on Sunday. But will it be somebody who immerses themselves in close study of God's word with a view to following it in every area of their life and of the church's life, however unpopular that might be? 
The big lesson, however, surely is that Saul fails, and he was the people's choice. And where is the leader who will listen to follow? And so we go into chapter 16 after the failed experiment, knowing what we're looking for, a man after God's own choice, own heart. And really, there never was a man more humble than the man after God's own heart, the Lord Jesus. There never was a man more courageous. You think of the courage of Jesus. The longer I follow Jesus, the more I am amazed at his courage. There never was a man with such integrity who really listened to follow. His understanding of the scriptures through having listened is extraordinary, divine. And there never was a man with such humility because he he wasn't about setting up a, a monument to himself. He was about listening to follow and was prepared to die in a despised way on a cross out of obedience. Praise God for him. Well, now, I think we could, in a way, finish there, but we're not going to get off quite so lightly because there's, a, I think, a very substantial sting in the tail of this chapter. It's not actually at the back end of the chapter. It runs all the way through. I don't think that's the only main point. Clearly, this is a passage about Saul, but there's much more, and we haven't yet turned to think about the people, and I think the author wants us to consider the people. So if you have a look at verse 15, at the end of the verse there, the people... Verse 21, but the people took. Verse 24, I feared the people, and literally I hearkened, I listened to follow their voice. And so Paul does blame the people, and Paul does pass the buck. And you could, like so many of the people who write on this, just say, well, look at Saul and look at his sin. But the people do have a voice, and the people did speak, and the people were insistent And the people are as much in the frame as Saul is. And that's precisely what the previous eight chapters have been saying. Now, this is a bit of hard work. I'm going to ask you to move back to chapter 8, if you wouldn't mind, and focus carefully on this because it's most important. We're on page 278. Chapter 8, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel... Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, hearken unto their voice and make them a king. So this is self-evidently the choice of the people that God allows them to choose to teach them an object lesson. Now turn to chapter 12 and verse 1. It's only a couple of pages further over. One, in fact. Chapter 12, verse 1. Here is Samuel defending his leadership, and he says, verse 1, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice in all that you've said to me and made a king over you. In other words, yes, I listened to the people's voice, as God told me to. Now look at verse 14 of chapter 12. Samuel says, you've made a huge blunder. Chapter 12 is all about the blunder of the people. And then he says, but if you will fear the Lord and serve him and hearken unto his voice and not rebel against the Lord. 
So all the way through this piece, you've got Saul and his failure. He won't hearken unto the, peop- unto the voice of the Lord. And all the way through this piece, you've got the people who will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord, but rather want their own king, who's head and shoulders above the rest, who's good at all the techniques that the world thinks wonderful, who's got good PR, great <coughs> PR, and a looks handsome and all the rest of it. And rather than hearken unto the voice of the Lord, the people, why, they want their king their way as well. What was it Jefferson is supposed to have said to the Americans? The government you elect is the government you deserve. That's my American accent. It's not nearly as bad as my Mandarin one, but (laughs) apparently Jefferson stole it from a French guy, but we'd rather give the credit to the, the Americans than the French, painful though it is. Joseph de Mitch said it first. Every country has the government it deserves. And so you get to the end of chapter 15 and everybody is to blame. Attentive listening, listening to follow. Why, it's as important to the people as it is to the king. And I guess there are two levels of application. And the first is the main one. That the people of God, human beings, men and women like you and me, as we look for a leader to save us, will always ensure that the wrong leader is appointed. It's quite humbling, isn't it? But if you look at history, and particularly the history of this country in the last few years, it's self-evident. We get the kind of leader we want. And if God's people are going to be saved, it requires a completely different kind of leader to the leader you want. One after God's own choice. And that's where we'll go next week. We always choose the wrong man or woman. And I think chapter 15 makes us say, well, if only we'd acknowledge our own failure, then we might start looking to the leader of God's choice. But I think there's an object lesson as well as we think about churches and leaders, and it's worth just touching on that. You know, leadership, yeah, leadership is everything. Teachers know it and all the rest of it. But actually, we have a very, very significant part to play. And when churches start to listen to follow, maybe they'll seek leaders who hearken unto the voice of the Lord rather than leaders who will tread the path of Saul into failure and oblivion. Let's pray together. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Father, we're very struck and cut by this. Forgive us for our empty displays. I pray that you would make every single one of us, men and women who are serious about listening, deeply attentive to your word, prepared to study hard and consider what you have to say to us in the scriptures. I pray, Lord, that in your kindness you give us hearts that want to follow and follow. 
we praise you for the Lord Jesus, all of our failure, and his glorious obedience, humility, courage, strength. And we thank you in his name. Amen.